can open with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 36 down through verse 43 this morning, which is where Jesus explains the parable of the wheat and tares to his disciples. And in particular, there seems to be an emphasis um, on the tares and the reality of what happens with those tares. Um, And in the broader picture, we see that, in essence, what Jesus is showing is what's going to happen to those who are the sons and daughters of the evil one, those who have rejected Christ. Now, in order to get started, I think it would be helpful if we were to review um, and refresh our memory again of the parable we looked at last week, beginning there in verse 24. Let me just read through this just kind of to refresh our understanding of what Jesus is about to give explanation of in our text this morning. In verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and showed tear, sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So Jesus shows them here in this parable that during the church age, That's the time between his two advents, uh, the time that we are living in currently. This is going to be a time of worldwide evangelism when the sons of God and the children of the evil one will inhabit God's green earth alongside one another until the very end of the age. Jesus makes it very clear that the separation of the wheat and the tares here in this parable representing sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one, we're going to see that when he gets to the explanation, would only be at the end of the age. So in the meanwhile, uh, they shall exist side by side, breathing the same air, enjoying the same sunshine and rain, eating the same sorts of food, attending the same schools, working in the same factories and offices, living in the same neighborhoods, and sometimes even attending the same churches. And with the lack of outward success in terms of the number of converts in the first evangelistic outing that these disciples had, Jesus sent them out in Matthew chapter 10, and he told them to go and to preach and teach the gospel of the kingdom, and he gave them authority to do miracles like he was doing. And with the lack of outward success that they were seeing, again, with the number of converts that they had, it seems that in these parables, Jesus 
specifically, and think Matthew specifically recorded, there's probably many parables that Jesus spoke of, but Matthew specifically recorded these, miracle, these parables, which seem to be an example of the kind of parable that was given to these disciples for the purpose of encouragement. So that while they are out sowing seed, because sowers do what? They sow, first parable. And so while they are out sowing and they're not seeing much in terms of a harvest of souls, not to not get discouraged. These next several parables seem to be an encouragement to give these men and the rest of Christ's disciples who will then for the rest of their lives devote their lives to a purpose other than their own purpose, which is a purpose God gave them, which is what? The fulfilling of a great commission. The purpose of being sowers who sow seed all the days of our lives, praying for God to cause growth, but all we can do is sow seed. Amen? That's all we can do. And so Christ is calling these men, and he's calling us as his disciples today to commit the rest of our lives believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we need to be sowers of seed all the days of our lives. And if the example that we see from Matthew 10, 11, and 12 in the lives of the disciples is any example of the kind of productivity that we may see as sowers who sow the seed, we might need encouragement. What do you think? We, not, we might need to be reminded about the end in, while we are now living in it. Have you ever heard someone say, I know who wins, I've read the end of the book. You ever heard that one? I think it would be uh, similar to say, I know who wins, I've read Jesus' parables of Matthew 13. You're in essence saying the exact same thing. Now, we may not see it with earthly eyes. I asked you last week, when you look at the world out there, does it look like Christendom has taken over the world? Not even close. And you see why we then need to be individuals who are not looking with earthly eyes, but with eyes of faith. Eyes of faith who see in the word of God promises, yet unfulfilled. And then the courage of conviction to grab hold of those promises and to not let go, regardless of what the eyes tell us. Because these ancient words are telling us something completely different. And so far, if you check the record, he's never wrong. So what would make you think that he's going to be wrong on that second advent? He promised the first advent. Did he come? He did. Changed the world. That's why we're gathered here today. The entire world's clock system has changed on birth of Jesus Christ. He came, and you can know for certain that he is coming again. So we need to be those who are giving our lives to the advancement of the building of God, one sown, sowed seed at a time. Are you in? Are you playing for the winning team? When you're out there in life and you're playing, the Apostle Paul had a tent factory and he made tents for the purpose of earning money to support the work of the ministry that he was engaged in. Therein is the game of life for the believer. We should not be confused at all as to why we are here. 
this planet and everything on it is temporal and is fading away and will pass away and you can take nothing with you when you leave. So why invest everything in the building a massive kingdom with all kinds of fun stuff that you can't even take with you? What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Loses his soul. No profit at all. And we know who wins. I used this quote last week from MacArthur. Christianity will win. Amen? Are you on the right team? Evil will be destroyed. Does it look like that with your eyes when you look out at the world today? No, it does not. It requires eyes of faith to see this and to believe this and then to invest your life into something that from a worldly perspective looks like a losing proposition. Evil will be destroyed and Jesus will reign. Christ himself is building his church and the very gates of Hades, death itself, shall not overpower it which is exactly what we're going to see from verses 36 through 43 when Jesus goes back and explains the meaning of the parable of the wheat and tares. In explaining the meaning of this parable, Jesus informs his disciples that the church age is not the time of final judgment against the world of unbelievers. So though sometimes we would like to see a little bit more of that now with a righteous indignation. The church age is for the express purpose of sowing the seeds of the gospel. And that with a genuine desire from our part to want to see the sons of the evil ones converted by mercy, God's mercy, by grace through faith alone. And then we're going to see also that one day soon at the end of the age, Jesus is going to send angelic reapers who will cast all the unbelieving tares into a lake of fire for all eternity. That knowledge alone should be enough to motivate us who are playing on the winning team to get busy in the sowing of the seed. Don't worry about what soil it lands on. Just cast it indiscriminately. Like we saw in the parable, that's a reality of life. Some of the seed you scatter will fall on hard soil, in rocky soil, and in Uh, soil that is overgrown with thorns and thistles. That's a fact of life, and they will not bear or yield a, a harvest. Don't let that discourage you. These parables are here to let you know you need to keep on because there is good soil out there. You need to keep sowing the seed indiscriminately and say, whosoever will come, come. It's a whosoever will gospel. You're not God. Let's not pretend like we are. We know not who the elect of God are. When I see the world, I see a world of of human beings, and everyone needs the Lord. And we need to spread the gospel in a way that it will land on every human heart. Angelic reapers are coming. Tares will be thrown into a lake of fire for all eternity. Do you know any tares? Both speak the word and live the word in such a way that they see your life, they're going to say, this man's life, this woman's life has been changed by the power of God alone. How can I do that too? These parables give us a big picture, a futuristic picture of the church age to the end of the age 
and that for the express purpose of encouraging you and me to strengthen our resolve, us laborers, us sowers in a vineyard, a part of God's cosmic plan of redemption where we sow one seed at a time, asking God to be merciful and causing growth. Now, let's look at verse 36. Let's look how Jesus explains this parable to his disciples. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Verse 38, And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So here in verse 36, here in verse 36, Jesus, we see, is now left, and he's, he's left the boat that he went, and he was preaching, and he's gone back to his home together with his disciples. He left the crowds went back into his house, and his disciples came with him. And we see very clearly that the disciples were confused. Can you explain to us this parable of the tares? There's something mysterious to this. There's something deep in what you're saying. And, and it seems that this in and of itself is a great explanation of how Jesus said to those, remember the first parable, to those whom have been given, even more shall be given to them, but to those who have been given, even that will, the, the little they have will be taken away. This seems to be an example of that in the lives of these disciples, whom God has granted the ability to see and hear and understand that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that he's the Son of God, the Son of Man, and they've put their faith in him, and they're following after him, and they're submitting to his lordship and doing what he's called them to do as his disciples. He's granted them this ability to see. And so there in verse 37, look again. Here we see how this parable differs from the opening parable of the sower in the soil. Here in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Now in verse 37, the one sowing is the son of man. In the previous parable, who was doing the sowing? We were, the disciples, went out with seed and were sowing. So we know that the parables are similar in that they use agrarian language in describing tr spiritual truth, but here we see that there is a significant difference in the usage and meaning of these images. The one now sowing in this parable the, is, is the son of man himself, and it says that he is sowing good seed. Now, the seed in the previous parable is just simply the gospel, right? The, the seed of the gospel. In this parable, we're going to see that the good seed that the Son of Man is sowing are the sons of the kingdom. Notice verse 38. And the field is the world, and as for the good seed, and who's sowing the good seed? The Son of Man. These, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. So it would, be, it would seem that what's happening is as from the first parable, the disciples go out and they're scattering the seed. It falls on a variety of 
soils, hearts, and those, the good soil, the good hearts that it falls upon that yield the 160-30, it seems that the Son of Man is the one by grace through faith, through God's mercy alone, is redeeming those, and he is then planting this good seed, these sons of the kingdom, in his world. The field is the world, the world in which we're living currently to be doing the work of ministry. So, and the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. If we're here as believers in Jesus Christ this morning, we're good seed that the Son of Man planted in his world. The gospel seed landed on us, and he caused it to grow. Some 100, some 60, some 30, by God's amazing grace. But the tares are the sons of the evil one. The tares are the rest of all of humanity, the world of unbelievers, a world of people still in need of Christ. And dare I say, until the end of the age, until this right here, until the end of the age when those reapers, those angelic reapers show up, every day is a great day for salvation, is it not? And so just because somebody that you preach the gospel to rejects it at first, maybe you move on because you've done it two or three times in a row. Maybe somebody's gonna, God will send somebody in behind you to, to water that seed or to replant a new seed and to water it. You never know when God may, by his grace through faith, cause a, another tear as were such were some of, or all of us and become planted as good seed, as sons of a kingdom here in this world. And so... We keep sowing the seed. And the enemy who sowed them, the enemy, this evil one here, is the devil. Now, I've got so many red lines on here, you can't make sense out of it. Makes sense to me. Hopefully, you can follow this, right? But the evil one here, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, the devil. That's language that we're not real oftentimes comfortable with. <clears throat> Most unbelievers, if you were to say to them, you're a son of the devil, they'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm a son of my mother and father, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're blinded to spiritual reality. So this, this truth isn't for them to see and understand. This is truth that we as believers are going to be able to perceive and understand and know. That unbelievers have a father, their father the devil, and they do his bidding. He's the prince of the power of this air, the culture in which we live, the cultural air in which we breathe. And have you noticed how vile and corrupt and disgusting it is out there when you just get into the internet world? Oh, but there's, you can do good things. You can order stuff and get it to your house the next day. That's right. But you just make the wrong click and you can find all sorts of evil that will drag you in like a funnel, siphon you in and you'll never get out. Perhaps there's all sorts of evil, and the evil one, the devil, is the father of these. And at the end of the age, there in verse 39, they will be reaped. Now, where do we see this language at a more um, at, a, at an earlier time in the revelation of God's word? I showed you this last week, but in Genesis 3, remember this from last week. After the fall into sin, the serpent deceived. Eve, she eats the apple, 
Adam eats the apple. God renders a curse. And here the curse, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Now notice verse 15 in particular and keep in mind this context that there are, there are sons of the kingdom and there are sons of the evil one. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between the serpent and the woman, enmity between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed, the serpent seed, and her seed, the woman's seed. There's going to be some kind of a cosmic enmity and strife between the seed of the serpent, this evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The tares are the sons of the evil one. All the way in Genesis 3, it was told that there was going to be a serpent, the devil, who was going to have evil seed that was going to be on this earth, people, and there was going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And contextually, if we bring this forward in the fullness of time, the seed of the woman was seen and fulfilled in the birth through the promise of Jesus Christ. And we see here that Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, what's he doing? He's sowing, he's sowing his kids. He's sowing his good seed on his earth who are sons of the kingdom. There's going to be perpetual enmity between the sons of the evil one and the sons of Jesus Christ that come forth from this seed who by mercy and grace are redeemed into the kingdom of God forever and ever. But again, we've read the end of the book. We know who wins, right? Now, we read the beginning of the book, and we know who wins. And you shall bruise him on the hill, and, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. A head blow is a death blow. A heel blow is, a mortal, is not a mortal wound. Jesus was wounded at the cross, but he rose victoriously. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? It's been swallowed up in grace. Okay, so we know who wins because we read the beginning of the book or the end of the book or the parables of Matthew 13, right? Exactly. So we see in Jesus' teaching that through the sowing of the gospel seed that falls on good soil, bringing many sons and daughters into the kingdom of God, which as we all know is the sovereign work of God. We can't save anybody. It's the sovereign work of God. We plant, we sow, we water. God causes the growth. So in this parable, Jesus sowing sons of the kingdom in the world is his strategic plan of planting kingdom kids exactly where he wants them during their stay upon the earth for the express purpose of doing the work of ministry, which is, again, seed sowing. So if you ever think that perhaps you're here for who knows what particular reason in Oklahoma, I don't like Oklahoma, God has you here, and while you're here, listen, you're his workmanship. Ephesians 
You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. For good works, and it's without question that the good works spoken of here most assuredly would include the work of the sower. Without question. Other things, sure. But without question, it's going to include the work of the sower. And what do sowers do? They sow. What do they sow? They sow the seed in obedience to their master. We sow the good seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everywhere we go, on every soil, every human heart possible, whether it's hard or rocky or thorny, that's not ours to decide. We scatter the seed, but we know that Christ will build his church, and that seed will fall on good soil, some 100, some 60, 30, and he plants that good seed as sons of the kingdom in his world, and he builds his church doing this. And this is why it seems the Apostle Paul said later in Ephesians as well, in Ephesians chapter 4, when he structured the church the way he did, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of service. Again, without question, with this work of service, though there's a multiple number of things it could in involve and does involve, being sowers is without question a part of the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It's without question that that would be included. So the, the question remains is, are we, as God's kingdom kids, are we going out as sowers who sow? It's what we're called to do. That's why we are here. We know who wins because we read the end. Our eyes are telling us one thing, but our hearts through the word of God is telling us something completely different. And so we get engaged and we invest our lives in something that from a worldly perspective seems like a losing cause, but we know that in the end, Christ wins. And we gladly give of ourselves. We gladly give away anything in order to be a part of that work of God. So again, this parable teaches us that the church age is not the time of final judgment. That time is coming. It's a time of sowing gospel seed. And as such, our compassionate landowner is allowing the wheat and the tares to continue to grow up side by side and is pleased through your work, through your labors, of sharing your life and the gospel to bring many sons and daughters to glory as he causes growth. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, that as many as the Father has given him, he will not lose one of them. Yeah, well, I don't have John. There we go. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. And notice the language here at the end of verses 39 and 40, but raise it up. When? On the last day. Reapers, angelic reapers, they're coming. There's going to be a great reaping of the church of God. We call it a rapture, and there's going to be a great reaping of 
tares in the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Again, not one wheat stalk can be left behind. Not one. For all that the Father has given to the Son will come. He will lose none. He said that in verse 37. What did he say? What did he say, Ben? Well, he said, I've come down from heaven. I'm looking for not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's 38. I said 37. Did I get the right verse, Avery? And all that the Father gives me will come to me. These are deep mysteries in the Godhead. We sometimes trifle and wrangle over words trying to understand and hedge it one way or try to hedge it another way for some particular purpose that we may have about our view of God. That wouldn't be fair of God if he actually had elect. Shouldn't he just make it equal for everybody, just make salvation a possibility? Save nobody, just make it a possibility and then leave it up to us? Well, the bad news is if he did that, none of us would respond. Not, not one. Because of total depravity, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, no one would come. So God, in his mercy, in his decreative will, he determined some. It's just what is. But what is it about the human heart that kind of doesn't like that? There's something in there that even causes us who claim to be on the team, the winning team, to try to push away from this kind of stuff and even keep us from going out and sharing the gospel and just kind of believing that God's going to save whoever he's going to save. I mean, that God's, that, excuse me, I said that backwards, that, that God's not going to save those, that we have to be the ones that actively get out there and do it. I was saying it on the reverse. I caught myself. Com completely confused now? I hope not. Let me, re let me restate that. It causes some of us to take the wrong attitude and say, since God's going to save who he's going to save, there's no need for me to go out and be a what? A sower. If, if, if it's all deterministic and God's going to do what he's going to do, then why does he need me to sow? I can, I can assure you that's not the way the heart of a child of God talks. And I can assure you that's not the way the heart of a child of God should even think. And we know this, why? Because we read the scriptures. This is what informs us. And when we read the scriptures, it informs us that God is pleased to use the means of his kids in the preaching of the seed sown. God is pleased to use that as a means unto his work of saving people. He doesn't just randomly, without the sowing of the seed, save people. He needs the likes of us to go out and be active evangelist disciples who are sowing seed indiscriminately and pleading that everyone would come. And then just letting God be God. So let's not allow this kind of doctrine to keep us from being active evangelists. It should cause us to be the exact opposite, more aggressive evangelists, knowing that the day of the Lord's coming is soon. On the last day, verses 39 and 40, Jesus will raise up a harvest of souls into the landowners, into his storehouse. But we're going to see that this time of the church age won't last forever. 
The time of sowing the seed of the gospel will come to an end. It will come to an end. There are angelic reapers. Come on, Averett, here we go. There are angelic reapers, and they are going to gather a harvest of the evil one who sowed his kids in this earth, and they will be thrown into eternal punishment forever and ever, which is why we must all do all that we can this side of that great angelic harvesting to first make all the more certain, if, if you will, of, of our own choosing and his calling in our own lives. And then secondly, to make certain we're about the business, the Lord's business of fulfilling his great commission of calling people to faith in Jesus Christ and to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc. He kind of lists them off. And he tells Jesus, all these things I have kept from my youth up. And so Jesus, who knows the hearts of all men, is test this man with an issue of lordship. Now we have to keep in mind, obviously, Jesus already knows the true condition of this man's heart when he's in conversation with him. He knows this man's not truly converted. And he shows this to be true through a test of lordship that he puts before the man. And Jesus does this by telling this rich young man that there's still one thing that he's lacking. So this is a really good guy. If you haven't noticed, he's a really good guy. I've kept all of these things. I've done all of the law. I'm a really good guy. I'm not a bad guy. I'm a good guy. My good is going to far outweigh any bad that I've done. As a matter of fact, I can't even think of any bad things I have done. That's how good this good guy was. But then Jesus tells this rich young ruler there's still one thing lacking. Just one thing. Jesus said, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. The Lordship test. Because truly converted hearts, hearts of good soil that, that yield the 160-30, converted hearts can see and hear and know that it's foolish again to gain the world if it costs you your soul. Converted hearts would never allow just one thing to keep them back from following Jesus. A converted heart would never allow just one thing to keep them from entering the kingdom of heaven. This rich young ruler, what did the text say about this man? It said that he went away saddened and grieved, for he was one who owned much property. There was something in his heart that he loved more than Christ. There was one thing that he loved more and could not let go of and relinquish in order to truly follow Christ. This was a really good guy. This was as, about as good as they get. One thing. This man went away saddened. In this story, this man, in lacking just this one area of his life, unwilling to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, in one besetting sin... His love of wealth 
was potentially going to keep this man from the kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't know the end of this man's story, his life. Perhaps later on in life, he got a, a mile or two away, and he was like, what am I, an idiot? Well, of course, I should give up everything. Oh, those are the parables for next week. We'll, we'll get to those parables next week. The value of the gospel, the value of the seed in comparison to all things you would sell and give up everything to possess this one thing. See, we'll get to that next week, but my, uh, my encouragement for us all this morning is to make certain that there's not anybody here that's got one thing, perhaps, that they're holding on to, one love in your heart. You may be the best person sitting here this morning, and you do the nicest things to all kinds and sorts of people, and you've, you've done all kinds of good to so many people, but you got one thing you love, like this rich young ruler, that you're unwilling to submit to the lordship of Christ, not just verbally, but actually to walk away. He said, go sell it and give it to the poor. Do away with it. It's a doing away with the thing, not just metaphorically speaking. He said, do away with the thing and then come follow me. One thing. Listen, if you're here this morning, you got one thing. My encouragement for you is to find repentance and then learn through that the art of genuine repentance, like, like John said, he said, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't say the one thing and then turn around and do the other, the opposite. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I go back and I just keep like a dog returning to its vomit, salmon to a mire. One thing. Listen, I feel an overwhelming responsibility as a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ to make the gospel clearer. And to make the gospel life all the more clear. So as not to give anyone here or ever that comes through these doors a false sense of security. A false sense of being saved if in fact they truly aren't. Again, if there's one area in your life that you're unwilling to bring under the submission of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May I plead with you today to not leave here without repenting and moving away from and turning and running to God and doing whatever you have to do. Sell the property. Cut off the hand. Pluck out the eye. Whatever it takes. Get rid of that one thing. Because such individuals, it says on many occasions, will not inherit the kingdom of God. On one thing. Don't tell me about how many other great things you've done. If you've got one thing that you know you love more than Christ, and you know that not by what you say, but by what you do, and your actions that speak louder than the words. Don't leave here today without resolving that. Die to your flesh. Give it up to God. Leave here today with a greater assurance that you are going to follow hard after Christ, the gospel life. That's not how you get saved. It's evidence of genuine salvation. Genuine salvation is by grace through faith alone. It's a free gift of God. It's not as a result of works, lest any man boast. But God has kind of rigged the system in such a way that those that are the good soil that bear the 160-30, the word of God tells us that you see that a person is justified by what they do. It's kind of rigged the system that way. For us down here on earth, because we're not God, we don't know the mind of God, but we have eyes to see. 
And so if I got a so-called brother that's telling me that he's in the faith, but he potentially, or a so-called sister that tells me she's in the faith, but she continually, and it, and it never ends, and I'm not talking about a month or two months or one year to two years or five years or ten years. I'm talking a lifetime, and there's a heart that is entrenched in a sin. I'm just pleading with you that, yes, salvation is not because you don't do that thing, but by doing that thing and demonstrating that the Spirit of God is actually not alive in you and enabling you to get rid of that, that might be evidence that you need to check all, all the more certain and make certain of his choosing and calling you, brethren. That's all I'm saying. And so in light of that, I have an assignment for you today. Where is my assignment? Right here. The assignment is, is I want you that sometime today before you put your head on the pillow, I want you to read 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Because what I'm going to tell you is that everything that I've just got finished saying to you, he says way more eloquently than I do in 15 verses. He says the exact same thing in 15 verses. And he says, and I'm, he says there at the end of that, and I'm all the more eager to remind you of these things. As a matter of fact, he says, even after my passing, even after my death, I want these, these things to come to your remembrance, that if you don't see the increasing growth of the Spirit of God in your life and you adding to your life, and it made me think of the 30, 60, 100, that there perhaps seems to be a, a living reality that as we are maturing in our walk with the Lord, we perhaps are growing from, like a, from a 30 to a 60 to a 100 at some point, that there's a maturation process in the life of believers. And we see that maturation process in Peter's teaching. Read that, you'll see. If these are yours, he says, and are increasing, it will, it will render you neither useless or unfruitful, unfruitful for your life in Christ's body. That's your assignment. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 15. Now my assignment is to finish this passage before the Super Bowl starts. So I can see some of you are starting to have flashes of like Super Bowl uh, predictions just flashing out of your ears. Let's get back to Matthew. Let me show you why this is so sobering and important for us to understand. Because as already mentioned, at the end of the age, there will be final judgment. Look at verse 40. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Just as in real life, tares get gathered up and burned with fire in just that way, so it will be at the end of the age with human souls. Humans will be gathered up. We saw in verse 38, the tares of the sons of the evil one. Jesus informed his disciples that at the end of the age, after the time of the church age, which is, I'm going to say it one more time, the time that sowers do what? So we sow. There will be a there will be a time at the end of the age when sowing will cease. Verse 41, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These two verses, 41 and 42, while somewhat complex, are really saying something very simple and plain to understand. 
A day is coming when angelic reapers will remove all unbelievers, the tares off this earth, and will throw them into a furnace of fire forever and ever and ever. And in that place there will be great sorrow for all eternity. That's the simple teaching. Now it's kind of packed. There in verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So if you're, uh, if you're a note taker, because I don't have time to do this this morning, if you're an, I was going to do something like this and come over here like this and then go like that, and then I was going to read for you Revelation chapter 14, 17 through 20 as an example of what verse 41 in our passage was looking like. I just don't know if I have time to do that. It's already 11.16 and these kitties back here sometimes get a little restless. So assignment number two, right, verse 41, we see verse 41 playing out in, and this is very loose, this isn't some, like, I wasn't going to do an exposition here in Revelation, but I think you'll get the gist when you just read it. I was just going to read it to you, and you were going to, you would feel this. In 17 through 20, we see verse 41 playing out, a gathering out of his kingdom, stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, trumpets, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, beginning in Revelation chapter 8 and moving forward. And we also see that verse 41 being played out in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 21. And we see that same language when we get down here. There in verse 15, and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. The wrath of God is going to be poured out on this earth and the gathering of, the gathering out of this kingdom, the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness will take place. And then in verse 42 where it says, and will throw them into the furnace of fire in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see that very clearly. Just go over and read, when you get a chance, read um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And this will kind of give a, a playing out of what we see there in verse 42. At the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away in no place was found for them, and I saw the dead, etc. So when you get all the way down to verse 15, and if anyone's name, anyone's name, tares, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We see verse 42 of Matthew 13, 42, them being cast into the furnace of fire, being played out there in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Go and read those as your second assignment today. Do you see how uh, sobering this is? Th this is? This is a reality that will take place. There's no getting around it, and it is very sobering. And it should cause sowers of the seed to want to sow more vigilantly than ever before because we know not who are going to be 
by God's mercy, saved. We don't know, and we should have a compassion like Jesus had. Remember at the end of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looked out upon those Jews there in Galilee, and he said that he had, he had felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? He had compassion for them, and he said to his disciples, pray that the, the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. And then in chapter 10, what did he do? He sent them out as laborers. The disciples went, sent, were sent out as the laborers to scatter the seed, first parable Matthew 13 the first parable it should cause us because of the, the, this is so staggering it should cause us to to love people in a different way than perhaps we've been loving them heretofore kind of codifying or kind of tacitly giving approval to things that are just going to send them to hell forever is not a very loving thing to do at some point we have to find the courage to step up and say listen friend can I share something with you from my heart? This may, and I don't want this to wound or harm our relationship, but I need you to know this truth because this is a deep truth within me, and I just want to share it with you. I can't make you believe anything. I just got to share it with you because in the sharing of the seed, what does Romans 1.16 say? The power of the, the, the preaching of the, the sowing of that seed, that becomes the power of God unto salvation. So you just got to get it out there. Be kind, be gracious, but you got to get it out there. There's something powerful in the seed of the gospel. You just get it out there and let the Spirit of God, who's alive and active and sharper, do any, any double-edged sword. Let him do the work. Let him do the work. This is sobering indeed. And then to end this parable in verse 43, it says, Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Oh, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is very sobering reality indeed and so on this one you'll see this being played out most specifically in revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 7 i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god made ready for a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the tabernacle of god is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and god himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain the first things have passed away and he who sits on the throne said behold i am making all things new and he said right for these words are faithful and true then he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end i will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost he who overcomes will inherit these things and i will be his god and he will be my son then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Everyone here this morning has heard. And if there's anyone here who is feeling uncertain about their relationship to God, perhaps wondering if your wheat or a tear that perhaps looks somewhat like Wheat talks like wheat, walks like wheat, tries to. Let me plead with you to not do what you've done before. It's about this time that I can almost envision the birds of heaven that come down and eat seed that gets put on hard soil. Don't let that happen if that's you this morning. 
Resist that with everything you got. If you're feeling that within your bosom, resist that with everything you got. No longer rationalize your sin. The idea of wanting to rationalize your sin, well, it's just one thing. I'm really a pretty good guy. I, I just have this one thing. I'm a really good girl, and I've only done, I, only, I only have a few things that I really don't want to give to the Lord. I want to hold them to myself because I just love them so much. I get so much pleasure from these things. Listen, don't allow one thing to keep you out of the kingdom of heaven forever and ever and ever. Don't rationalize your sin anymore. Learn what it means to have a true understanding and nature of genuine repentance that bears fruit, some 100, some 60, and some 30. And lastly, don't marginalize your apathy towards the things of God. If you look in your heart and you see that you have apathy towards things of God, don't marginalize that. Don't kind of justify that in your own thinking. Don't say, well, I, I, re I, really, I really do love the church. I just don't really like the church because there's so many hypocrites, right? That's what I always say. I hear, if I've heard that once, I've heard that a hundred times. Well, let me tell you, a church is just a family like any other family. When you look at your own family in the mirror of your own family, do you ever see any issues or problems or difficulties or trials or struggles? Yeah, and it's made up of people just like a church is. And if you're looking to be, find perfect people in a church, you're never going to find the perfect church because we're just people, we're a family that we're committed to each other and love. So don't marginalize apathy towards God and the things of God and the things of the people of God in Christ's church. Listen, if you're not committed to a church, get committed to a local church. Don't date the church. Jesus Christ died for the church. It's what he died for. There are an innumerable number of parachurches out there that are worthy of your energy and your effort and your money and your time without question. But when they trump the church, you've got it upside down. You've got it upside down. Jesus flows in and works through and mingles among and is with his people when the church is gathered and scattered. Don't get me wrong. Let's be the people of God who strive together imperfectly to accomplish great things for God this side of heaven. Our lives are short, friends, brothers and sisters. Let's strive together. Let's encourage one another. Challenge one another. Find ways to get the gospel out there better. Not wrangle over words and issues and topics. Let's be the people of God. We've got one mission. We've read the beginning. We've read the end. We've read Matthew 13. We know who wins. Let's be on the team that wins actively with everything we got, heart, soul, mind, and strength under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please don't leave this morning if you haven't settled that all-important issue. Please don't allow one thing, one thing you love more than Christ to keep you away from his eternal kingdom.